0: Aunt Jemima waffles for special hurry-up treats. Mm.
1: Cream chicken or turkey between two Aunt Jemima waffles and topped with cranberry or strawberry sauce. Mm.
2: Welcome to Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago-based food and restaurant podcast by me, Michael Gebert. James Beard Award-winning food writer and video maker for the Chicago Reader, Wear Chicago, Thrillist, and more. It's spring at last, just in time for summer, and we'll start by talking about the things that grow locally. First, I talk with the people behind a food distributor, Local Foods, which aims to make locally grown food available and competitive with the products of the industrial food system. And then I talk with a farmer who's trying to bring his local produce to a new culinary area beer. Adrian Miller just won a James Beard Award, and deservedly so, for his book about soul food in America. I'll chat with him about the food and the culture behind the name, and have some soul food suggestions for Chicago. And how did it become normal to talk about food online with strangers? Admit it, we all do it now. I'll talk with David Hammond and Rob Gardner, both fellow co-founders with me of LTH Forum ten years ago this month, about how that happened. It's all on Airwaves Full of Bacon, the pot liquor in the bowl of locally grown collard greens. Hey, so before we get started, let's get some business out of the way. This podcast is a labor of love for you folks who want to tag along with me as a journalist as I explore our food scene. And what makes it worth doing is, well, knowing some people actually listen to it. So if you like it, you can pay me back by subscribing for free at iTunes, leaving comments and ratings there, and last but far from least, telling friends about it if you like it on Twitter, Facebook, etc. You can find the direct link for iTunes and lots of other things in the show post at skyfulofbacon.com. What's the future of local food? Can it ever scale up to the point where it achieves the kind of efficiencies that the industrial food system enjoys? One attempt at an answer to that is taking shape in an old fish processing plant on the Chicago River near North and Elston. Local Foods is a distributor for local meat and produce from the Upper Midwest, founded about a year and a half ago it's now building out its distribution center and retail space, which it hopes to have running by the end of the year. Founder Andrew Lutze wasn't available the day I visited them, but I met three of his colleagues, one of whom I've known for a while. Dave Rand, who used to be the director of farmer operations and outreach for the Green City Market, and then worked at Q7 Ranch in Marengo, Illinois. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm, I'm Ryan Kimura. Okay. I'm Gary Lazarski. I'm general counsel. Okay. And we know Dave. Well, Everyone on the radio recognizes I Dave. I
3: really don't know about that.
2: We exit the building where their offices are, and walk toward the square building just to its south.
3: It's kind of cool being on the river, and all the iron activity that's going on with the recycling plants, and we've got sippy metals across the street, we've got uh, the, uh, Finkels moving actually, but they're you know, just right over on Cortland. So it's definitely an old industrial area that's that's turning.
4: <laughs> and what did this building used to be? Here?
3: Yeah, it's, I mean, they, it was called the Hanna Cylinder Works. I, I get the sense that they made <laughs> giant iron cylinders <laughs> for something. So, so those tall uh, iron bow truss beams right there used to be a gantry crane that spanned the parking lot, and this was like their iron yard. Elston is a great north-to-south thoroughfare in Chicago. Um, We're 30 seconds off the Armitage exit on the freeway. And just a really nice uh, central location for what is this retail wholesale
2: hybrid that we're building. On And and here we go into rubble. Smells like fish. We're inside a vast building with wooden arches big enough to train equestrians in. The concrete floor is broken in spots into jagged heaps of rubble. This building will allow us uh, a, a
3: substantial amount of growth potential, um, but one thing that's going to be different about local foods versus, uh, uh, say, a Testa or something like that is that everything's kind of harvested to order and really peak freshness, and so the turnover, rate of turnover is going to be really high. Um, that's the intention, at least. Um, so we're standing in what's effectively going to be all cooler space right now. Um, And, you know,
4: we... (laughs) And freezer space, right? Yeah. So uh, the freezer allows us to do more interesting things than, uh, and and not necessarily rely on the farmer to to freeze the product or, uh, so we'd be able to kind of store something and be able to hang on to it and um, provide a longer season or longer shelf life for a product that's maybe not available now.
3: Yeah, when you're entirely a Midwest local business, you need to get creative, and that's what we're setting out to do, so... For example, last year, at the end of the summer, we froze like 4,000 pounds of heirloom tomatoes <coughs> that we're still selling um, now, uh, which just preserved the season just whole and in 10 and 20-pound food service bags. We did pumpkin puree. We froze sugar snap peas, um, did some fresh-cut vegetable blends. It's about getting creative. It's an insurance policy for, for us to make sure that we have uh, <coughs> new and unique things to sell in the winter and spring. So it's not all beets and potatoes and onions, um, but it's also uh, a way to make sure that we don't have as much spoilage and our farmers aren't composting stuff. I mean, bumper crops of tomatoes happen like that, and then they're they're on and they're they're only so good for so long. So you need to have outlets to process them and to preserve them. This was a format, you know, that we played around with and said, well, what would what would a chef buy? You know, they obviously when they need tomatoes, they need a lot of them. So if they're making sauce, they're going to need 20 pounds of tomatoes at least. Um, so let's try big bags and vacuum
2: pack them. And mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're, we're playing how around the, with stuff like that. How do tomatoes come out of that? I don't think I've ever frozen a tomato.
3: <clears throat> you know, intact, if you don't cut them uh, and you just literally take them whole, wash them and freeze them um, in a sauce or a Bloody Mary or a juicing um, uh, uh, application, they're, they're excellent. I mean, they have all the nutritional value a lot of that summer flavor left in them so yeah it was it's turned out pretty well been nope. surprised it's uh you know it's better it's than better something that's traveled <laughs> it's a better than a 10 can of miles. you know whatever we'll actually be um usda inspected for uh wholesale meat cutting so we can cut to spec for restaurants uh we can make sausages and salamis and country hams and bacon and dry dry uh, fermented sausages as well as uh, smoked products as well so we're we're really excited about all the different aspects of the business and those are are just a couple of them
2: so how much of this is going to be the retail
3: well we're actually limited um based on zoning you know so that's that's just kind of a limiting factor but let's call it you know somewhere between three and four thousand square feet it's a um cash-and-carry, you know, open to the public uh, kind of um, wholesale showroom operation is is how we're uh, structuring it so that we can really have it be a playground for chefs and restaurateurs to come in and touch and taste and see all of the hyper-seasonal stuff that we've got, um, you know, throughout the year and get a sense of what our inventory looks like, and we want to be a very transparent operation from day one, so... um, walk you back to the warehouse and then you can uh, walk away with a small case of stuff to take home and try or test uh, using your test kitchen um, and then say I'll take six cases that delivered to my restaurant tomorrow and we can do that for you so we really do want it to be an engaged an engaging place for
4: for chefs. Right. It's, it's transparency, transparency through that entire distribution chain as well. So mm-hmm. that's that's one part of the existing kind of food system that is a little bit harder to see through. And so when we have uh, a big showroom and a big market like that, that uh, chefs can touch and feel, that, that really um, opens that up and changes the level of transparency. Okay. So when this all
2: started, <laughs> I mean, just as a distributor, was there any intention of eventually having retail, or was this always in the works, or...?
3: I think it, it has. We've always known that there's more than just restaurants. We want to engage the general public on a lot of different levels. We want to be a, someone who we want to be a company that educates. We want to be a company that um, <clears throat> makes local food fun and easy. Um, so I think retail is just a very natural
4: uh, next step. Yeah, I think there's a demand for it in the marketplace, right? If you want something that's local. Um and, and really high-quality products that are farm-direct and you know where that product is coming from. It's There are limited places in Chicago from which to get something like that. Um, and so if we're already pulling together a group of farmers and, and really top-quality guys in the Midwest um, and, and f- to bring that product to restaurants already, it makes sense to do that for a, a consumer mm-hmm. as well.
2: Yeah, because I find myself thinking sometimes it's like, I want to make this tonight, but I can't go to the market till Wednesday, so I can't make this. Right. You know, which is kind of a really stupid way to think about eating better food. Well, yeah. But, but <laughs> I get used to the idea that I can get it on Wednesday and Saturday at Green yeah. City, so. Right. Well, this will be a, you know, everyday farmer's market. Yeah, and you're an exception, right? So you've you've got
3: uh, you've not only got the, the 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 history and the knowledge of of the farmers and the and the market system in Chicago, um, but we want to make that the norm, uh, where there is no barrier to uh, uh, accessing high quality farm identified products um, on a on a regular business hours kind of uh, uh, at a regular business hours uh, location on, on your schedule, basically. yeah, on your schedule,
2: right? right. Yeah. Do you have enough farmers at this point for all this stuff, or are you out recruiting farmers like mad? We're constantly re- recruiting farmers,
3: constantly. Um, and they're coming to us a lot too. So um, we're a service provider for both ends of this market. We're, we're a service provider for farmers. We help them with marketing and sales and distribution. That We call it the last mile. You know, just uh, They've done all the work to get it grown and harvested, and a lot of times the hardest part is the end. Um, finding a home for it, getting it there, getting the right price for it, um, not uh, not having to worry about spoilage and things like that, or compost. So, yeah, we're it's it's a constant process.
2: Well, that and the fact that we've been developing the company for you know the last over a year out of temporary space, so we've been able to build up a good roster of farmers and <laughs> restaurants and other customers, so that you know, by the time we do hit the ground running with the open
3: dedicated space, uh, we'll be a you know an operating entity that has a, a reputation. That's a yeah. It's a great point because we couldn't have just opened this and then hoped people would come. We've we've really been working our tails off to you know to have a viable business in anticipation of opening this.
4: I think we learned a lot about logistics. <laughs> uh, moving products from farms uh, in rural locations uh, off truck routes and off of highways uh, is not an easy thing to do, and, and no wonder why farmers have a hard time moving things. Into the city and into other markets, it's it's just logistically challenging, and so we learned a lot about um, what that infrastructure is like, and um, a, a lot about the what a, a distribution business does, and, and what um, that cooler and refrigeration infrastructure is like, that the truck infrastructure, moving things on pallets basically, and and working in the, that kind of scale um, in local food uh, requires a different set of um, skills and different focus.
2: Has the product mix changed as you actually started
4: selling? Um, You know, I think we've always set out to carry a wide range of products and to be a one-stop shop for the restaurants and and grocery stores, schools, other institutions. Um, So our goal was to try and be representative of the products that are in the Midwest. Um, I think recently um, we've... You know, we we've always focused heavily on meat because of Dave's background with Q7 and um, and with Andrew's background at his family's farm. Um, and I think and produce has always been a heavy uh, product for us just by the nature of the products that are grown in the Midwest. But I think right now we're you know we've seen a lot of interest in grains um, that aren't as easily available in the Midwest. And um, as we as Dave mentioned about the frozen products, I think we're going to start to try and. Um, put together other product offerings that are like that, that are value added offerings that um, you know, a chef would really take advantage of and consumers are really looking for that are all locally made and manufactured.
2: Well, that's interesting because I remember, I mean, people like Rob Gardner saying, you know, you can put a bunch of local stuff on your pizza, but you can't find the flour to that's make right. a local pizza. Has that changed?
3: Yeah, we have uh, a very strong grain and flour operation right now uh, that, that's a, a very close partner with us. Um, we, uh, we have a fresh milled flour program uh, where we're getting in uh, flour that was milled uh, by the time it gets to the customer within the past 14 days, um, and that's exceptional. That, um, that is another little piece of my background, too. Uh, when I was out in Washington State, I worked for an organic grain farm and had a fresh milled flour program that we sold into Portland and Seattle and having that little bit of experience, or at least knowing what a good model was to try and replicate, uh, was a good experience to have coming into this as well. Um, And we're doing it. We've got, uh, we're selling more flour every week. Uh, We can custom mill for people. Uh, We can do whole grains. We can source a range of price points and do organic or sustainable or uh, chemical-free production. Um, So, we're trying to find a market for all of it and you can have cornmeal and buckwheat and rye and oats and all these heirloom grains and emmer farro and, and red wheat and
4: winter wheat spring wheat all of it so it's and all here not to I mean, mention beans too yeah, right that's so a good point. other products like that that people don't necessarily think of right away when they think midwest and local
5: yeah, and as
2: much as Illinois is known for its commodity, you know, grain production, right? everybody <laughs> thinks of it as large scale, yeah. uh, what we've found, uh, you know, in, in going out and in cultivating farmers is that they're excited to, and they want to, as long as there's a market, grow a lot of these specialty grains. These are the things they enjoy doing, right? It's kind of like, you know, you've got your day job, and then you've got your, the thing that really
3: gets you excited. That's really common, actually, now. We're seeing that a lot more, where you've got the commodity operation kind of pays the bills and pays for your big tractors, and then... Uh, they They all have extra acreage that they can break into uh, to do some fun stuff, and so so that 's happening a lot and um, one thing that 's been a consistent message this year, especially in the spring and we 're doing a lot of crop planning with farmers right now, is tell me what you want to grow you know tell me what you want me to grow as a farmer and so we just simply need some some verbal some handshake commitments from some of our consumers uh chefs or schools or uh, whatever it may be grocery stores and we have a great resource which is being able to go out and tell farmers there's a market for this if you can grow it and um, set the price point early and I think it's it's gonna we, we get a couple years into this business and then we're really going to get into that stuff but we've only been around for about a year so it's hard to have the I don't know the growing season history. Yeah, the right. cojones right. To, to, to forward contract for, you know, 25 acres of Brussels sprouts or something like that. But that's not too far away.
2: You can't shop from local foods yet, though you can shop at places they sell to like the Dill Pickle Co-op in Logan Square and Greengrocer in Westtown. They hope to open their Elston facility by the end of the year. You can follow their progress at localfoods.com. So, speaking of locally grown grain, just a couple of weeks after that interview, I met a farmer who's doing exactly what the local foods guys were talking about, growing more interesting things on the side of his commodity crops. And he's trying to interest a particular group of artisans in these local Illinois crops. In this case, though, it's not chefs, it's brewers. His name is Eric Stigman, and I met him at an event for Jared Rubin's Moody Tongue Brewing in Pilsen. You may remember me talking to Jared in episode four.
5: Our farm's basically, uh, we're 700 acre corn and soybean farm, and uh, it's a family farm, and- uh, Where is it? uh, 100 miles south of Chicago, Thawville, Illinois. Well, I'd gotten, got kind of restless with corn and soybeans and I had tried uh, grapes and I still have an acre of grapes. About 10 years ago I started uh, malding. I grew my own, basically all of the beer I've produced uh, has been with my own grain. And I started growing an acre or two and then hand molding it in my basement and uh, using window fans and stuff to to uh, dry it down. and. Uh, putting it in the oven, using the home oven and so forth, and then I I might have been foolishly thought, <laughs> so I'm going to expand this and go uh, see if I can make a small commercial scale uh, operation, and I started building my own equipment, built my own kiln, and uh, I put it outside just in case it blew up or caught on fire. I didn't want it in a building. Anybody that wants to make beer on their own place has got to have some hops, so i um, I've actually got four or five different varieties now, but I, uh, 15 years ago or so, when I first tried it, I ordered some from Gurneys, and they were Holotows uh, hops. I believe they're probably American Holotows. I, I don't know how to tell the difference because uh, the ones I've got make really good Kolsch-style uh, beer, so I'm, <laughs> I'm satisfied with that, or uh, I have made some lagers with them. Uh, and uh, they seem to survive pretty well in Illinois, and they don't grow as well as uh, some other hops. But uh, if you like to make a German-style beer, that's pretty important to have their variety of hops. So. And I'm still checking out different breweries around in Chicago and, and some downstate, uh, which uh, I haven't shown you. I did have uh, Blind Pig brewed the first all-Illinois-grain beer, which is my grain. i got some pictures of that over there. And uh, they were kind of interested in working with it. <clears throat> in
2: terms of local grain, I mean, you, you said the, re- the reaction to that wasn't all that great at first, you said.
5: Oh, I mean, as far as from the brewers? Yeah. Uh, it, it seems like uh, well, brewers aren't too open to it because I think uh, a lot of them are selling everything they make. And it's kind of like, well, why should I add any expense or hassle on it when whatever I make sells and uh, kind of saw this as something in the future that was going to come down and uh, and Jared felt the same way when I talked to him about it and I was kind of like well that's <laughs> I found somebody who uh, who thinks this is a good idea and uh, along with that uh, I was uh, pushing that I the idea of terroir the idea uh, which I found through my beer making and growing is uh, I think the terroir applies to uh, barley and, and probably also applies to hops as well as it does to grapes. And uh, and I think that's a whole new uh, avenue that brewing is going to move into in the future. And uh, it, it whenever you start something new, you have a lot of people that aren't interested in listening to you talk about it. And I, I think maybe... Uh, maybe the tide's turning a little bit now, and now that there's quite a few people around the country that are interested in the malting, and uh, the, a lot of the new uh, micro distillers are showing some interest in, in um, different flavors from maybe the same malt variety or something that's local, that uh, has a specific flavor that maybe no one else has.
2: about food, and then there are books about food that reveal a whole world behind the food. One of the latter is Adrian Miller's Soul Food, the surprising story of an American cuisine one plate at a time, which just won a James Beard Award in the reference and scholarship category. It's not surprising that food has a lot of cultural meanings for African Americans who were brought here as slaves, survived decades of grinding poverty and oppression, and have long existed on the knife edge of hunger. But you'll learn a lot of things from Miller about the cultural meanings of a kind of food that is both the most traditional of American cuisines and maybe our first example of an international fusion cuisine. I spoke with Miller by telephone from Denver, where he lives. My first question has to be You're in Denver. Is there soul food in Denver? I never saw soul food in Denver. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I, I immediately lose street cred on soul food when I tell people that I'm from Denver. But yes, we do have soul food here. Um, we have actually three pretty good restaurants um, that I like to recommend to people. But there's a, it's not a huge soul food scene, but we've got a decent one. And uh, really small, small mom-and-pop operations, kind of the typical soul food places that you would expect. But one actually has gotten international prominence. It was on a Guy Fieri's show, Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives.
2: Which is the gold standard um, called, for everything we know.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, it was called Core Faith Cafe. Okay. Um, the interesting thing is uh, we more soul food places are popping up in Aurora. Uh, a lot of African Americans are, are leaving Denver to settle in Aurora. Interesting. So some, some, yeah, gentrification things and other things going on here.
2: And all going to work for telecom companies and then they get fed up with it and they start soul food restaurants instead? <laughs>
1: No, more that uh, you know, just lack of options. So they they get the entrepreneurial spirit. Somebody told them, "Hey, you're a good cook. You have to start a place." Okay. So it's more more about that.
2: And that's probably pretty much the way anybody gets into soul food. I imagine is they start uh, they 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 do a, a wedding or something, and people say, "Oh, you should have a restaurant." So. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, and that leads to problems down the road, because what I have found is that uh, a lot of these soul food entrepreneurs are, are great at making the food, but not so much at running a business. And, uh, you know, the restaurant business is just tough anyway. Uh, so as I went around the country, one of the big takeaways is that a lot of these restaurants are in peril. Um, you know, Chicago is a perfect example. A lot of places that have been around for decades have uh, are no longer with us, uh, and it's closed in the last you know, five to ten years. And, and really, part of it is uh, as the proprietors get to a point where they either want to retire or they or they die. Um, there's no one there to really take up the business and carry it on, because uh, typically the kids are just not interested, or and are, nor are the employees. I think the only um, great example uh, to the contrary is uh, Edna's transitioning to Ruby's.
2: Right, because they used and, to work yeah.
1: there. Yeah. But that's rare. Uh, so, a lot of these food joints are just closing up.
2: It, it's one of the first things in the book is that list of places in Chicago that closed. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah. gee, um, I hope they'll be. <laughs> you know, there's somewhere I can go <laughs> eat after reading this book. <laughs>
1: there are. There are some good places still. I, I would recommend uh, Ruby's. And then also, there's a place called Morrison's. Yes. On Ashland. I've yeah, been, I really yeah. like those two. Yeah, I like those places.
2: You know, it's funny. Morrison, you know, I've been taking photos in restaurants for years. And mm-hmm. it's been a long time since anybody asked me what I was doing, but I started taking a picture. They they have that weird way of marking the boxes to tell the cashier what's inside your styrofoam mm-hmm. container. I, uh-huh. snapped, I snapped a picture of that and she was in my face immediately wondering who I was and what I was up <laughs> to. It's like, oh, I guess, I guess the foodie internet hasn't gotten down to this far on, on Ashland yet. But uh,
1: yeah, no, it's unusual with soul food joints because, again, as I went around the country taking pictures, people were looking at me, some, some were laughing. Like, You're taking a picture of your food? <laughs> so.
2: I, th- I thought it was funny that you said the first question is always what's the difference between Southern and soul food, which was going to be my first question, of course. And um, I thought it was interesting that you say that the, there was a difference before the Civil War, but not after. So tell tell me about that a little.
1: Yeah, so um, one of the things that I saw is that there was kind of a racial caste system about food. Uh, So African-Americans, particularly enslaved African-Americans, often got the foods that weren't considered prestige foods as their day-in and day-out food. So it was a lot of vegetables in season, um, pretty much just water, uh, cornmeal. You know, the typical slave rations were five pounds of uh, either cornmeal, rice, or sweet potatoes, a couple of pounds of smoked meat, which could be pork, beef, or fish, depending on what was uh, cheapest, and maybe a jug of molasses, and so to that extent, um, African Americans had to supplement um, their diet by hunting, foraging, fishing, and other things, because the, the ration system was just pretty basic. But what happens after the Civil War is that uh, the gulf between prestige and practical just disappears because of the food shortages and other things, uh, a lot of the food ways merged during that time. So things that whites may not have eaten in the past because they just looked down upon these foods became necessary for survival and got embraced to some extent. And we still see uh, these foods continue in tradition um, throughout the South. And, And one of the big conclusions I get in my book is that when you think about Southern food and soul food, uh, it's really more about class than race. Pretty much people of the same socioeconomic status, white and black, are, are eating the same foods. Now, they weren't eating them together, but they're eating pretty similar foods. There are some distinctions in terms of ingredients. Like, for instance, chitlins is something that you're going to see in a soul food restaurant, or you probably won't see it in a Southern although there are plenty of Southern whites who do eat chitlins from time to time. They may not admit it publicly, (laughs) uh, but they do eat it. it. Uh, But I think the really hallmark is the difference in seasoning. Uh, Soul food tends to be more intense. So it's gonna be sweeter, it's gonna be saltier, probably gonna have more red pepper.
2: The term soul food is a fairly recent invention. You said it kinda comes from the Black Power era. So how did people think about that food before it was sort of invested with this meaning as as a form of, of black cultural pride.
1: Well, yeah, to break that down a little bit more. So it, it goes mainstream at, in the mid 60s with the black power movement and, and strong expressions of black cultural identity. But soul food, at the term was bouncing around in the black community at, at least a decade before that. Uh, it really comes from the music world when these, you had know, these disgruntled jazz musicians. Um, who were uh, African-American jazz musicians, who were uh, mad because the white musicians were the ones getting the best gigs, all of the money, and the publicity. So they decided to take jazz to a place where they thought white musicians could not mimic that sound. And that sound was the black church of the rural South. And they started calling that gospel sound soul and funky in the late 40s and then well into the 50s. And so that soul concept starts to get slapped to other aspects of black culture soul music, soul brother, soul man, soul food. So that was floating around beforehand, and then it becomes mainstream in the 60s. But what happens in the 60s is that the term soul food starts to get racialized and radicalized. And so um, you had black power advocates trying to unify a very disparate, uh, African-American community across the country, and they thought cultural norms were the best way to connect people, and food is one of the best connectors. And so the things that we think of as soul food, they started saying that whites had no way to understand this, couldn't relate to these foods, which was news to white Southerners because they had been eating the same foods for about 300 years. Yeah. But what? So the fallout of that is that in the 60s, soul becomes black, Southern becomes white, and we start to see that, and we even deal with the legacy of that today. Like if I were to say, name someone strongly associated with soul food cooking on a national level, I think very few names would pop up. But then when you think of Southern cooking, you've got a longer list of names that, that uh, come forth. So, yeah, Paula Dean, her son, Trisha Yearwood. Uh, and so, one of the things I'm trying to uh, round out the story is that by creating this soul equals black, Southern equals white, it obscures the major contributions that African Americans have made to Southern cooking.
2: Now, let's talk about the African influence for a second. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's easy to see traditional British European cooking in the Southern diet in the you know in the slavery era. Um, where does the African influence come into that?
1: So, you, what you see is uh, the traditional West African meal has been a starchy uh, base with some kind of savory soup, stew, or sauce, either served alongside it or on top of it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, lots greens were very, very important to the diet, fish, uh, lots of means and rice combinations. Uh, and so you start to see those things show up on this side of the Atlantic in the food eating. So uh, it, it's no coincidence that a lot of the greens used in soul food are bitter greens because one of the most prominent and popular greens used in West Africa is, what they, is something they call bitter leaf. So there you see a a substitution, um, collards, mustard, turnip, kale. um, All of those are are bitter greens. Then you see a lot of fish. Uh, Time and time again, people commented on how much uh, people of African heritage uh, in the United States often ate a lot more fish than the general population. So that's another thing that shows up. Um, We see sweet potatoes as a substitute for yams. And a lot of rice and bean dishes are only in two. One is Hoppin' john which is black-eyed peas and, uh, and rice, and then also uh, red beans and rice, popular in New Orleans. Again, you can see that rice and bean combination. And then you have some straight transference of uh, African foods, watermelon, black-eyed peas, okra. Um, as type of sesame seed, they call them beni, um, come over and get uh, infused in the foods of the Americas. Uh, and again, that's because of African-Americans having a hand in the pot.
2: Now, the black eyed peas was interesting, I thought, because my Irish grandmother on January 1st, you know, she'd come chasing after you with a bowl of, of black eyed peas that you had better, really? that you had better eat. And reading all this, I'm trying to figure out where she would have gotten it. You know, she did grow up in southern Illinois, so I suppose there's kind of a southern and African-American influence in the food around there. But still, I mean, 100% Irish. So,
1: Yeah, so it's interesting because there's no corollary in West Africa. Black-eyed peas are an auspicious food for certain uh, deities. because uh, in, in several West African religions, uh, the gods have human-like qualities, so they have favorite foods. So if you're going to... Um, celebrate an auspicious day for that particular god, you would have black eyed peas. So that's where it gets the specialness. And also, it was believed that the eye would ward off the evil eye. So that was another idea that it was for good luck. So you've got that in West Africa. But then in Northern Europe, you've got this idea that a tradition that on the first day of the year, the first person who should visit you should be a dark-haired person with dark eyes. And that's called the first-footer tradition. So that was another thing that... um, it kind of develops on New Year's Day. So uh, you have these two groups meeting in the uh, Annabellum South, and then the other kind of ingredient here is uh, the Sephardic Jewish community eats black-eyed peas on Rosh Hashanah for good luck. And in Charleston and Savannah, you actually had a decent um, Sephardic Jewish community. So I think those elements and cultural sharing kind of happens, and then all of a sudden black-eyed peas get christened as a New Year's Day food. And I believe it's – I'm almost positive because there were a lot of Southerners that arrived in um, Southern Illinois. They called it Little Egypt. She probably got that or heard that from one of her Southern neighbors and thought, oh, that's a cool idea. I'll just do that for fun. Hmm.
2: Now, another uh, thing that I thought was really interesting about uh, where – there's a kind of subterranean African-American current in something that's, you know, mainstream white American was the whole thing about red Kool-Aid and you make a convincing case <laughs> that, uh, yeah, this is, this is one of those things that I think most pe- white people have no idea that red kool is this big, big thing that, you know, black soldiers in Vietnam, that was the thing they wanted most sent to them from home and things like that. But Mm -hmm. you you argue that it's also the source of things like Coca-Cola, that it was the general desire for these sort of red drinks that turn it, turned into the caramel colored Coke. And
1: yeah. So um, whenever you see uh, a communal situation for, of African-Americans, whether it was an emancipation celebration, a wedding or some, just some kind of gathering. They're usually with some kind of red drink. Uh, in early newspaper accounts after emancipation, uh, the red drink of choice was red lemonade. And then it transitions to red soda pop. And then it transitions to red Kool Aid. Uh, and so you could have any kind of red drink um, at a special occasion. And you have to understand, red is a flavor, okay, in soul food tradition. So we don't get caught up in describing something as cherry or strawberry or has hints of cranberries, just red. Uh, and the, uh, most soul food restaurants will have a red drink, either as a soda pop, as a punch, or as Kool Aid. And so, in um, thinking about why this tradition continues, I found out that there are two traditional red drinks that cross the Atlantic from West Africa to the Americas. And one is cola. Uh, and cola, you know, everybody's like, well, cola is brown, but like you said, it gets colored that, that way. But cola nuts are white or red. And typically in um, several West African societies, as a sign of hospitality, a visitor would be offered either red cola nuts to chew or uh, be offered a red cola nut tea, and that was just a drink of hospitality. The other um, drink is hibiscus, um, which comes over and gets transplanted in Jamaica, so if you've ever spent any time in the Caribbean is a Christmas drink called sorrel that's very popular. Well, that drink starts to spread around Latin America and South America and gets transformed into what we call agua de jamaica. So if you've ever been to the Taqueria and had agua de jamaica, you're drinking a West African drink. And with kola nut tea and with hibiscus or sorrel or agua de jamaica, whatever you call it, it's all the same formula as Kool-Aid. You get some water, you color it red, and sweeten it to taste. Um, now, I have to say... It seems the younger generation is starting to break from that. You're starting to see purple um, becoming more popular. I'm not sure what that's about, but uh, I think red drink is still the, the official drink of, of uh,
2: soul food. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, the, the purple drink, yeah, is is out there as a thing, too. Um, I don't know. Does it taste like grape or does it just taste purple? <laughs>
1: Tastes like great. Okay. I will say that. Okay. Yeah.
2: So, so we at least know where that came from. Tell me where you think soul food is going. How does it? How does it continue to assimilate or evolve, or what? What is it going to do?
1: Yeah. So um, it's branching out in kind of three ways, as I see. So one is you still have the traditional soul food cooking going, although that's waning. Um, It's strongest in the South. Uh, because there's just there's a lot more cultural momentum uh, there, but outside of the South, it's waning because uh, it seems like fewer younger people are actually embracing soul food and cooking at home. Now that may change because there looks like there's a kind of a cooking revival going on, but well, that remains to be seen. Uh, the strong momentum with the down home healthy, as I call it, which is uh, take, taking the traditional soul food, lightening it up, um, using vegetable oils instead of lard, using um, Baking and boiling and stewing maybe instead of frying and that sort of thing. So that seems big. But again, the big, big, big trend is uh, the vegan and vegetarian soul food uh, movement. Uh, that's where a lot of the creative energy is. And one of the marquee chefs for that movement is Brian Terry, uh, who just came out with a book called um, Afro Vegan. And the interesting thing about the vegetarian and vegan um, movement is it's not necessarily just about the food. There's a lot of other interesting uh, inquiries and perspectives brought out, talking about eco justice. You know um, how a plant-based diet can lead to better health, but also can create some more economic independence because you'll be allowed to grow your own food uh, and change the dynamic. Where uh, right now, a lot of our urban communities have food deserts, where typically the neighborhoods where African Americans live is just more difficult to uh, to get produce and, and healthy food. But uh, what I argue in my book is the only way that soul food, especially in the traditional sense, is going to survive is if people are comfortable eating the food and cooking the food at home, as well as going to the restaurants. Uh, if, unless those things really are strong, um, soul food will be a minor player. Better than being a major cuisine that sh- a major cuisine that should be celebrated.
6: Well, I walked and I walked and I walked and I walked and I, walked and I stopped to rest my feet. I said I'm sight of a great big tree, and I soon was fast asleep. I dream I was sitting in a twelve-castee, just as hungry as a fowl. My stomach sent a telegram to my throat. Now the wreck on the road somewhere. I heard the voice of a push-up say come on, take me and rest. You talk about favor, you the beast, but I know what's the best. That push-up, deal-chop, ham and egg, take yourself and rest. Heard the voice of a push-up say come on, take me and rest.
2: Adrian Miller's Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine One Plate at a Time, is published by the University of North Carolina Press. You can find out more at adrianemiller.com. Now, we talked about the list of dead soul food places in Chicago that Miller has right at the start of his book, but soul food does survive here, and it's evolving here. He mentioned Morrison's, 8127 South Ashland, and Ruby's, the former Edna's, at 3175 West Madison. Those are good, and among the old-school places, with the cafeteria line of fried chicken and smothered pork chops and crowds on Sunday morning, I'd also recommend Pearl's Place, 3901 South Michigan, and MacArthur's, 5412 West Madison. Those are pretty much the classic soul food experience. And be sure to save room for dessert. Miller says in the book that anyone who hasn't had sweet potato pie hasn't lived, and Pearl's does a great version of that and a very good peach cobbler. While the thing you want to not miss at MacArthur's is caramel cake. It doesn't sound like much, it doesn't look like much, it's just yellow cake, but it's good. I haven't explored vegetarian soul food that much personally, but it exists at places like Soul Vegetarian East, 205 East 75th, and I had surprisingly good vegetarian greens and pot liquor at Yah's Cuisine, that's Y A H apostrophe S, at 2347 East 75th Street. Now, Yelp says Yaws is closed at the moment, but it seems to kind of go in and out of business, so who knows? Check it out for yourself. I'll have links for all these places at skyfullofbacon.com. Ten years ago this month, I and close to a dozen others launched LTH Forum, Chicago's online food discussion site. And in the process, we helped pioneer a lot of things about how we talk about and interact with food online that are pretty mainstream now. I thought it would be fun to look back at that time, not to relive LTH's history, but our own, to talk about how talking about food online changed our lives, and if you're listening to this, yours too, I'm pretty sure. So I invited two of my comrades from those early days to chat about it offline. They're David Hammond, who writes about Food for the Sun-Times, Oak Park's Wednesday Journal, and other places. And Rob Gardner, who publishes The Local Beat. That's B-E-E-T. An online resource devoted to eating locally in Chicago. We met at a Mexican restaurant in Cicero, which I chose because it has particular significance on this subject for me. Here we are at La Quebrada in Cicero. A lovely stretch of Cicero opposite some factory. What, what is that? Where know? David met Michael, as a matter of That's fact. right. Well, I was going to get to that. Okay.
7: Used to be a strip place across the street. Do you remember that? Oh, oh yeah. It was a good one, too. Because uh,
2: no, there's still one down the street. <laughs> right. But
7: no, that building
2: right over there. That's what I thought it was closer when I saw that one. And a dozen years ago, I was reading this thing online about food where total strangers were advocating places to go eat in weird parts of town. Sounds scary. But I worked up my courage after some guy named Vital Information um, recommended this place, and I came down here. So I think it was probably, it may not have been the first recommendation I took, but it's certainly the farthest and scariest that I had gone to take one from you, Rob.
7: The first recommendation that actually you liked?
2: It might have been that, yeah. Um, But the other thing was that David was here and came over and introduced himself.
0: And thus began a beautiful bromance. A beautiful
2: bromance. Um, Well, it's interesting to me that it did represent probably the first time that someone I only knew from online, I actually met that person because, of course, that was the era when, you know, as Time magazine, I'm sure, warned us all the time. Killers lurked on every corner of the Internet and, you know, doing anything like that was horrible. Teo. Actually interacting with people you only know from the Internet was this terrible, risky thing.
0: When I would go out to lunch or dinner in the early days of Chowhound and that LTH forum, my daughter Lydia said once or twice, uh, oh, you're going out with your loser Internet friends? And (laughs) because it did seem kind of odd to have met people online and then to meet them in reality, God knows what kind of psychopath you might be ending up with. But now... My daughter uses uh, OkCupid and a number of other sites that are designed to set up meetings with effectively total strangers online. And it no longer seems like such a weird thing. Uh, I mean, and apparently it's no longer so scary either because a lot of people use those dating sites to meet other people.
2: You may not know the people on Facebook, but you know the people who know the people on Facebook. And it's that kind of... Some verification. Some level of verification. And the fact that
7: you actually put your name as your Chowhound name was very, very, very gutsy, right? Everyone was, you know, we all had to hide behind the, you know, anonymity of
0: which I know, still don't quite names. understand. And it's for, and given that I'm a guy who's uh not good with names in the first place, that I have to remember two names for people. I mean, some people I've known like eight years and I still refer to, you know, Jim and Logan Square. (laughs) N701. (laughs) Rather than NR706, right. Yeah,
2: Yeah, well, of course, it only becomes a problem knowing two names if you meet them in the real world where they have another name. Right. So all of these things were sort of new
0: territory. And, and, And I suppose the reason for people using handles, screen names, like Big Burger 502 rather than David Hammond is because they were somewhat concerned about their privacy you know some psycho getting their real name tracking them down but also I think for business reasons people might not in the beginning might have been a little cautious about letting their employers know that they went to a tequila tasting (laughs) or were doing other in fact we had a request on LTH forum from and I'm not going to mention names of course but an attorney who had in fact been to a tequila tasting and wanted to change their screen name because it was too close to the actual name and they were, they were afraid the client, their law firm, would find out that they were doing things like hanging out with a bunch of guys in pills and matching shots at tequila. And I understand that concern. And now all those law firms have a social media
2: manager. Well, all right. So to get back to the specifics of this, we were on Chowhound and we were talking about food and recommending places to go eat, and that to me was a new thing too. I mean, now I think it's pretty mainstream. I mean, Yelp you would certainly not. Eating yes, eating is pretty mainstream. Um,
0: it's amazing how it's taken off, and we were there at the beginning. <laughs> the whole we did food it better thing. than anyone, <laughs> right?
2: I mean, certainly something like Yelp. You wouldn't say that that's a niche thing. That's that's pretty mainstream. People make reservations through on oh, OpenTable. They order their food from Grubhub. All those things. So they may not reflect the level of obsession that we had, but you know they're out there doing it. Um, and that was that was a pretty new thing. I don't know how did how did people go to restaurants back then? How was it even possible to go to a restaurant without the internet? Well, like Rob, how did you find this place? By driving by it. Okay. Actually,
7: actually, she, Sheila wanted me to point this out to the at last week at the LTH. That it was she who had drove past it and noticed a lot of people in it. So she figured. <laughs> so she was like, we have to go try this place. She was coming back from some Girl Scout meeting and was driving down Roosevelt.
0: I think something that, uh, yes, it's become more common now. I mean, every day that people look for restaurants online and share information about restaurants. But there was something of, I mean, 12 years or so ago, and we started doing that 11, 12 years ago, there's something that was exciting to be able to connect with people that way and share information that way before Facebook, before Twitter, um, and I think there was, that was a historical moment that'll never come back. I mean, that was just a really special time and an exciting time because there was kind of the enthusiasm of the new. That this is a new way to not only find great places to eat and share our passion for food, but also to meet people. I mean, it was a new thing to do, and for that reason, it was just exciting. It was fun to see how far you could push it and what you could do with this new platform. See, see I think like,
7: like for me, you know, I, I mean, I was, I was looking for this kind of this information before it was on Chowhound. So you know, I was reading the Stern books or gourmet or. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I had like you know, she so, beats by Amy LeBron right. And exactly. Like so, I mean, all the internet did was just made it a lot more efficient. The Stearns would write a book, and then like three years later, you know, everything would be all out of date, right? By the time it hits the public, so you, you know, you take away all that that problem. But the other thing, like Mike's brought this up before, is is you know what the internet did is 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 you discovered that there was a hundred people who had better information than you know the people who were writing for the. Um, I mean, no offense. You know, I mean, Stearns, I think did you know, did yep. really cool stuff. But there was a lot of other people out there that you know weren't you know are not so much authors per se, but just publications, blah 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 blah. They weren't pushing out the interesting stuff. They weren't putting Latkebrot out there. They weren't putting out you know all this kind of stuff. So
2: yeah, Lou Mitchell's was yeah. the recommendation that everyone Mr. always Beef. made. Yeah.
7: Um,
2: I mean, to me, that was that was the big thing. It's not just that I heard about these places because as you say we had books and things like that And but I would go looking for places based on what I read about and it was always this kind of sad thing that Susan was very long-suffering about. You know, we'd go to a Korean restaurant and they'd lay out 20 kinds of panchan all of which were completely unfamiliar to me and we'd sort of puzzle our way through it and feel guilty about the fact that we weren't eating most of it and so on and so on and to... First of all, to be able to find people who also would go on this adventure was more was more fun, mm-hmm. yep. but also just that you know you learn what things were so much faster. It just was you know jet speed, you know, or it's like going into hyperdrive in Star Wars in terms of you know in a week you could become an expert on handmade tortillas such as we have in front of us here, because there were eight other people who talk about it who knew more than you did. So. Yeah,
7: I, I mean I think of like to me like the you know the peak of like online experience where it was like. I'm, one day I'm walking by you know, down Milwaukee, Logan Square, and it's like, these people selling food out of this van. So, I'm like, and there's people, you know, the blue van, the red van, you know, whatever so I'm like, you know, I, I gotta try this. So, you know, I have a few things, and it's like, this is really good. So I, I write the post on Shahan. Like, next week, you know, there's like this, like, you know, 5,000 word essay, you know, from, <laughs> From RST. RST. Right? RST you know, um, on you know, the province of the, you know, the band driver's mother and why that means that, you know, the chili sauce they use. It was all downhill from there.
6: <laughs> the
0: first time I posted on Show you responded to it, Rob. Uh, it was about this incredible Italian beef place, Johnny's, I had found, and I wanted to share it with people. And Rob very kindly responded back, well, you know, this has been written about on Chowhound, and you might find it. And, of course, it had. I mean, but, And that, I think, kind of forces, that kind of response really kind of motivated me to go find more interesting stuff to write about, which meant I got to eat more interesting stuff, which meant that my eating life became
2: more interesting. I mean, it was a competitive atmosphere in a lot of ways, and I'm sure a lot of people were turned off at some point by the first response they got being, you know,
0: oh, we already know all about right. that. Right, some would. I mean, we talked for a while, jokingly, but the, about having a secret handshake or a hand signal or something that would, like, signal to others in the restaurant. That I we think
2: were. the secret signal was being a fat white guy in an ethnic <laughs> restaurant. With <We're> a goatee. <laughs> With a goatee in an ethnic restaurant.
0: And a camera. With a camera, right? Although it's, yeah. that's one of the cool things about the explosion of iPhones and so on with camera with photographic capabilities, is that everyone's taking pictures of their food. If I go into a restaurant and I'm, unless I have some elaborate camera, you know, with umbrellas and fancy lights and stuff I'm just another schmo taking pictures of my food. They're not, the likelihood it's less likely that people will treat me differently or figure, oh this guy must be a blogger or a you know, columnist or whatever. They just figure oh, it's just another guy taking pictures like everybody else. Yeah.
2: And in this case sitting at a Mexican restaurant with a with giant a microphone, microphone and, and, a, and an open laptop and they don't care. Right?
0: I think a real advance an LTH form forum, thinking back to that time, when we broke away from Chowhound and started LTH1, was that you could post pictures. You could interlard, if you will, right pictures with a post, which I don't think you can do to this day on Yelp or other.
2: You can put pictures, but you can't put them in a post, I don't think, yeah.
0: And I think it was hugely advantageous to be able to, it's like, more like a magazine article. You can write something, put in a picture to illustrate, write a little more, picture to illustrate, which well, makes it more
2: interesting. Yeah, it allows a different way of telling a story too. Which is just you know, then I had this, and it looked like this, and it had these on it. I, I mean, I, I I agree
7: and I dis- disagree because I mean, obviously, getting the pictures was really cool. And um, well, I just think that it, it 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 made people lazy. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it took away a lot. It took away you know, mm-hmm. a certain sense of what was uh, right. making Chowhound good
0: right. good. Because it's no so longer... It you had to be literary? Well, you had to be able to write you had to pretty well, because words had to do it all. I mean, you, you couldn't really post a picture and say, we had this great hamburger, and as you can see from the picture, it looks delicious.
7: <laughs> but the other thing that, like, pictures did is instead of taking... I mean,
0: it's not
7: a perfect yes-no kind of situation. But before, I think there was a lot more effort into, you know, the, the idea yes. was to, to find, and the story, you know, the story was how you found it, and the... And the the, the the hunt you know that child hunt you know that was what made it interesting and then when the pictures came what did, everyone just like flocked to like how pretty the picture was and suddenly it didn't make a difference what you said or what you found or what you did if you didn't have pretty pictures on you know you weren't you are a loser and it was kind of frustrating for two reasons you know one is you know it, the ability to take good pictures is is was a you, you, first of all, you know, you, it, like a skill in of itself, but it was also was an equipment thing, too. And so before, when you had, you know, anyone can go out and find, you know, interesting restaurants and write about it, now LTH, you know, it was all about put out, you know, your pretty pictures, and that's what was garnered, you
0: know, the, See, the I attention. I wouldn't say that if you didn't include pictures that made you a loser, or, or what it did do, I think, in a post is make for a less attractive post. I mean, people are attracted to pictures. Magazines, newspapers have a lot of them. They draw eyes. They draw clicks. Well, that's another point I think about the moment, the historic moment when we started LTH Forum. There hadn't been a lot of focus by Sirius, East, or Sky Full of Bacon, whatever, on smaller, on smaller mom-and-pop places, and. There was, as Rob said, kind of a thrill of discovery at that point. Like, you're really finding places that no one has actually written about yet.
2: It it was very hard to find coverage of a restaurant that was basically not in 60601 or 60611, you know, downtown in Lincoln Park at that point. And talking about like Chicago Magazine any of those are places I mean there were there were a few things that were known outside that and it had probably been known for 30 years you know the Lou Mitchell's kind of places but basically it was assumed that if you wanted to read about restaurants you wanted to read about downtown restaurants and the you know I think we popularized the idea that actually people were also interested about, about the neighborhoods and to me that's me just personally that's the thing that kind of changed my life is going out and discovering ethnic food meant going out and discovering the neighborhoods and I had lived here for 10 years I owned a house and yet I still kind of didn't feel like I was from here I felt like you know I was a Kansan temporarily in a big city and I might be in another big city sometime you know which was certainly common for people in advertising then I was like the guy who knew all these things I do you know, pizza places like Vito and Nick's way on the south side, and I knew Mexican food in Pilsen and, and things like that. And I, you know, for me, it was really kind of the belated bonding with the city that I lived in.
0: I mean,
2: I I, mean, I, I, I agree with that to
7: the extent that the internet, and LTH, Chowhound, and all this kind of stuff, you know, the reader when they went through their phase of you know, really kind of heavy duty coverage around you know these kind of places definitely helped you know kind of expand people's interest but I also think I still think it goes back to the sense of just resources you know but if you look at Chicago Magazine circa 1978 you would see Army and Lou's listed in there you know so but the point is it's like Army and Lou's is not the only soul food restaurant in Chicago or LEM's you know might be listed in there but but you just didn't have the resources you didn't have someone at the time they go and find another 10 barbecue restaurants, another, you know, 20 soul food restaurants. You know, so those, there was all sorts of reasons. You know, so I think that, again, you know, that by marshalling the troops and empowering these people and stuff and giving them a platform, you know, you, you just did what, you know, Monica Eng and Phil Battelle and, you know, all those other people couldn't do on their own. I mean, it's not like, it's not like they weren't trying, but there's only so much they can do, and
2: The future. What does the future, the future hold? Right. You still going to eat this sort of stuff? I mean, one of the things that changed was what your interest in food was, Rob, which was that you went from liking, you know, ratty little ethnic places to be more involved with local food and things like that, which often leaves out ratty little ethnic places. I mean, it certainly leaves out most of the barbecue in Chicago, for instance.
7: I mean, yeah. I mean, although I would say that... that I almost not want to say recircling, but but I do, you know. I I I feel like it's the opposite. I feel like there's, th- like I'm kind of at a loss, you know. Like I, I feel like you know that I'm at a loss for really being able to 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 like share the way that I could effectively share in the past. So because you're not eating out as much, or you're no, because the, because there's
2: the
0: platform, and there's not the platform. Yeah. So yeah. Oh. Not Wait, tw- I don't, maybe not tw- I don't understand. Why is there not a? I mean, it's a different platform. But Twitter yeah. and Facebook. Well, and I LTH forum. I mean, there are loads of platforms. You may prefer not to be on them, but the platforms. Are yeah,
7: different. well. So, the, but the point is, is there really an effective? Pl- you know, is there an effective platform? You know? I mean, and, and you know, I think that is the problem. Is you know, these days there isn't a. You know, one once upon a time, you know, we, you know, you know, there was that period, you know, from like two thousand one to two thousand four, you know, where we were. All on one platform, whether we you know liked it or not, and you know that everything was was talked about. You know, and then that's all. You know, it's all splintered for a variety of reasons, good and bad. And it, there's no, there is no central platform anymore. I don't
2: know, for me, it's Twitter, but it's it's a very different sort of way. Talking about stuff, and uh, admittedly, for me, a lot of it is linking to something I did somewhere exactly. else. Exactly. Oh, that's you where know. I thought you were going. Yeah. You know, no, it's sky I, I, or, or the series things series I write for. Thrillist. reader, thriller. You know, whatever I happen to be writing for that week. So. But. Well, you, but you don't get
7: the see like with with you know the old days you know you got the media you know you you would write about a place that's the whole thing I mean, what what hooks you and you, know, you wrote about a place and then someone went there and they said oh man that was good and then it was like you know that's what you wanted you know that's like your little boner points. You know, now I put something. You put something on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Maybe someone says, "Oh yeah, you know, I like your picture. Or, you know, that's a cool picture." But you know, I, you know, when, when the next, when does the next time someone say, "Oh yeah, man, that was a really cool Ukrainian place." You know, um,
2: you I, know, know I, I, and, I hear about people checking things out. What I don't get is the immediate linear that's response I mean. yeah. that you would have gotten on a Well, I thought too. There's something
0: we all have to kind of cop to here. Is that when we were first posting on Chowhound. That's pretty much the only place, the three of us, just to use a small sample, that's the only place we were writing much about food. Now, Mike, you're writing on, yeah, Thrill is Suez. Um, yeah, I'm writing on Sun Times and uh, Oak Park and wherever else I can get into and River Radio. Rob is writing on Local Beat. I mean, there's just diffusion of our attention, too. I mean, yeah. we're, well, we're, we're not things. as focused on it. I think just another thought <clears throat> on the moment, too. I mean, that, that 10 or 11 years ago when all three of us started posting on Chow Hound and then LTH. Mike, you and I worked uh, for an internet consultancy for a while. Uh, the internet bubble breaks, 2001 or so. 9-11 is in 2001. A lot of my business dried up after, after 9-11. I did a lot of work for corporate meetings. People weren't traveling, weren't doing corporate meetings. They were still in shock for like a year after that. So. A lot of clients went out of business. I had a lot of clients who just went out of business, Uh, so I had time, and I'm a writer, so I'm finding stuff on the internet that appeals to my food interest, which had been very uncultivated at that point. And I had the time to start going out to lunch with Rob and writing about it on Chowhound. And I think it seems like a lot of folks, all three of us at least, (laughs) who were there at the beginning. We're in, self-employed, <laughs> so we kind of make our own hours, uh, and in my case at least, maybe yours too, Mike, I don't know, but the um, that 2001-2002 period was uh, after the explosive business of the 90s, 2001-2002, uh, things were calming down fairly, decelerating fairly rapidly.
2: It was a good time to have a, a two-hour lunch that cost $9. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean... Yeah. It's absolutely
0: true. And then Goldman write about it for
7: two hours. Right. <laughs> I mean, the other thing that happened. I mean, to me, like huge reason why you know this this happened was you know like two thousand. You know, I moved to Oak Park in two thousand. We we got high speed internet. You know, we got cable modem. <laughs> I mean, all of a sudden it was like, you know, in the old days if I was like on AOL or I was on anything else, you know, it was like. <laughs> you know you had to go to the you know so you 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 would do it you know like maybe like you know once a day or once a week or something but the, by, by being you know always there you know anytime you could just you know anytime you wanted to go to a it was there i think that's that's what so drove it it was the fact that it was, and the, you know i think for like people like us that were around and you know if you're not you're working by yourself or whatever it was like a little coffee clutch And it was always there because now you had high speed internet, you didn't have to worry about connecting. So, yeah, yes, at
2: 56K, it would, you know, no one would ever have known about Vito and Nix. Right, that's so true. Thanks to Dave Rand, Ryan Kimura, and Gary Lazarski of Local Foods, and Heidi Hageman. To Eric Stigman of Mammoth Malt, Jared Rubin of Moody Tongue, and Chip Bouchard. Adrian Miller, Kathy Lambrick, David Hammond, Rob Gardner, and the nice folks at La Quebrada 4859 West Roosevelt, and Cicero, who are used to seeing guys with all kinds of equipment in there by now. Music was by Kevin McLeod and Bogus Ben Covington. I'll be back in a few weeks with another one this is episode
6: 11 in a swell cafe. This is what they said to me hey want you have some chicken oh no I'll have some beef every time a man refused chicken, yeah you have to pay for his